1: Doesn't it
2: happen once in a while, that you wake up and you think to yourself, it seems like our company's in a rut, our people are in a rut, our ideas are in a rut, everything's in a rut, and we're not making the kind of progress that we want to make. How do we stop being mediocre and start being awesome? That's what's going to take us out of the rut. To answer that question, Dave McKeon. Dave, welcome to the show.
1: Hey, Joel, thanks for having me. It's great to be here with you.
2: Mediocrity is probably got to be one of the worst things ever because uh, you know it's. Uh, I mean, I think a mediocrity is average. I know what you think it is, but but you know, average is like terrible in in, in most everything, right?
1: Yeah. Mediocrity is not a fun place to be. Um, And, and you know, for me, it's when you get to that point when you're you're not doing bad work necessarily, but you're definitely not doing great work and you're not doing your best work. And, and it comes out, impacts you, your team, your clients, your organization.
2: So scale of uh, like a report card, like when you were in elementary school, you know, they just give you a report card. And I'm not talking about one of those inflated report cards from nowadays. I'm talking about the kind that we got when we were kids—the the more serious ones. Uh, what level are we talking about? A, B, or C? You know, as mediocre.
1: I, you know, I think it's got to be b, B-ish. You yeah. know, De- definitely as you're into C, you're like, ah, that's we're we're really slipping. But I, uh, you know, listen, a I, b minus.
2: I'm I'm with you on the on the B, B minus because uh, you know being a C you're out of business in a heartbeat as a C but but your your goal is to get an A in the class right you got to be an A student or you'll uh, or you're just not going to uh, you know be a performer you're not going to be memorable in the marketplace so so what uh, what are the characteristics that make somebody mediocre?
1: Oh, I think mediocrity the the one of the main reasons that it creeps in is is lack of intention. And, and just letting things accrete over time. And I see it happen in organizations and with leaders quite often in this dynamic. We live in a world where everything needs to, get, needs to be done yesterday. And we've given anybody and everybody permission to interrupt us at any time and, and to deem whatever level of urgency that they want on it. And so when we lead with that sense of urgency we have a tendency to step forward and say you know what we need to get this done right away it's going to be just quicker faster easier for me to jump in save the day or just to tell somebody on on my team and so we have so many leaders out there who are leading through these acts of heroism of making them the center of the story which then has a negative impact on their team if you're showing up every day and just telling your people what to do or jumping in and saving the day for them Over time, they'll stop thinking for themselves and they'll stop coming up with their own uh, solutions to their challenges. They'll develop uh, a sense of learned helplessness. Why would I bother if you're just going to do it for me anyway? And then that ends up um, making you as the leader feeling frustrated as you become a greater bottleneck to everything that's happening, which then lends itself to a greater sense of urgency as well. And so I see a lot of teams get trapped in this Um, urgent response crisis in the day-to-day weeds. And there's not a lot of time to really focus on what makes an awesome team, which is um, thinking about the medium and long-term direction of where we're going.
2: You know, uh, it sounds a lot like what happens to, uh, you know, kids who are in uh, elementary school and junior high school, you know, when the parents are doing the homework yeah, and, you know, and the kids aren't learning anything and they're, they're you know, it just, it just, it sounds like the same kind of cycle.
1: It, and, it is. It uh, is I, very I mean,
2: much so. Uh, what I want to explore this. So this urgent response crisis thing that you're describing, that's one process that's probably broken. There probably are many others. And I'd like right. to just kind of get a list of, you know, or, or just kind of develop a a little, a short, very short list, maybe. But, uh, you know, what are some other things that just go wrong? because we'll dig into a couple of these things. But what are some other things that cause companies to just be mediocre, B minus performers?
1: Uh, lack of intentionality in in our, in our planning. So most leaders are very good at at dealing with those day-to-day crises that we talked about. They're also, a lot of leaders are pretty good at saying, well, what's the vision of the organization, the mission, where we're going, the bit that's often missing is the bit in the middle. The reality is that the success of your business is built on the individual actions that you and your team take every day. You make more actions that are good. You win. You make more actions or, or decisions that are bad and you lose. But so much, so many of those actions and decisions are made almost in a vacuum. There's no connection to the overarching vision and mission of the organization. And there's a big black hole in the middle, which is, okay, if we want to get somewhere as a, as, a, as a company, what does that look like three years out? What does that look like 12 years out? What does that, I mean, sorry, 12 months out? What does that look like three months out? How do we ensure that we're setting the goals for ourselves and then tracking to it? Because the more that you spend time in that dust cloud of the day to day, the more likely that you'll slip into that sense of mediocrity because you're not taking the time to evaluate and go, what does what does great even look like for us? And are we achieving that? And, and we let things accrete and priorities come in and shift and values to change until one day you wake up and you go, what is what's going on around here? I, I, I just don't know what what this is all for or what we're trying to get to.
2: So is that um failure to do strategic planning? I mean I mean what is this really?
1: That's definitely a, a part of it. Um there's this there's the setting of our strategic plan of where we're going, but actually what's almost more important is building an implementation rhythm that allows us to ensure that we're getting close to that what often happens in most organizations is you'll sit down spend two or three days with your senior team once a year and you get all aligned and you go, that was great. I know where we're going. And then you sort of forget about it for a year until halfway through in the year and somebody goes, oh, well, what were we supposed to be doing this year? And you take a look at it and you go, well, well, we've done some of that, a bunch of that stuff's fallen off and I don't quite know about that other stuff. And during that time, then um, as customer needs change, as individual um, uh, parts of the industry shift, we at, end up shifting our priorities in a way that's not intentional. It's not li- aligned to where we're trying to go. And so that pulls our people in, in a whole bunch of directions and, and they have a lack of clarity around what it all adds up to. Hey, When you
2: work with companies, uh, you know, do you find yourself on the strategic side or the tactical side?
1: Um, I sit in two in two places. One, I help facilitate strategic discussions. So I help bring a group of leaders that often have, um, if not opposing, but certainly differing perspectives on where we should be going. And I help facilitate a discussion to land on the, the best course of action that that group can come up with. And then I work a lot on the behavioral side of things of those leaders. The reality is, That a strategic plan is only as good as the quality of the leaders that are in the organization to to get us there. And and if we don't have leaders that have developed the mindset, skill set, and behaviors to implement or execute that strategic plan, then it's just going to be a, a bit of paper that sits in a drawer for a year. Um, you've got to ensure that you're building a team um, that understand that are aligned around your common goals and your direction and that have what it takes to to go out there and make it happen without getting sucked into that mediocrity of the day to day.
2: Let's dig in a little bit on this uh, tactical versus behavioral. Mm. Cause I was kind of thinking about tactical a little differently. The behaviors are different than actions, I mean, I mean they're they're a little different, you know, can, mm-hmm. can you kind of differentiate between you know behaviors and uh, you know and and actually getting work done because they're not the same, are they?
1: No, I, I mean hard work it, 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 actions are the very granular things that need to happen, so complete this report, pick up the phone and call this person, go to this meeting. Um, you know, engage in this discussion, all of those individual actions, the behaviors are ultimately how we approach those. So let's say two people have one action, which is to make a sales call and just complete, you know, just making this up. Somebody could turn up and the behaviors that they have could be, they could be very open. They could be very transparent. They could have a very consultative process in, in, in that call. And somebody could Turn up and be completely curt and and not particularly friendly and and those are two be, behavioral differences in how you approach that individual action.
2: So, um, so there's kind of like a style component, you know, and and it lies in between strategy and tactics is the style of the people. So, do you work with companies on the styles of their people to kind of help them to be? Uh, more effective based on who they're talking to and whatever whatever I mean I mean where are you here in this process
1: I I I work on helping them set those overarching strategies set the goals for where they want to go set the overarching strategies for how to get there and then yeah there is an element of um, a behavioral aspect mostly about how they interact with each other and with their team Because you bring any group of people together in a room, everybody's got their own ego. Everybody's got their own way of viewing the world. Everybody's got their own um, inbuilt behaviors of, of how they show up. And the implementation of a strategy is going to be really impacted by the behaviors of the group. So if you've got a bunch of leaders that are, you know, there and they just beat their chest and it's about who can scream the loudest or who can last the longest, that's going to have a very different culture of leadership than a group that comes in and all they want to do is ensure that there's consensus and make sure everybody's okay and everybody's comfortable. And there's no right or wrong answer around how a culture of a team should be, but understanding those different perspectives, mindsets and behaviors in the room and ensuring that we're drawing upon the strongest aspect or the most um, beneficial aspect of everybody in the room is how a team ultimately functions at a high performing level.
2: Uh, so so how do you help companies to uh, you know fix behaviors that you know are not productive for them and they're not taking them in the right direction or behaviors that let's say are, causing mediocrity. I mean, how do do you, how do you, number one, how do you identify it? How do you address it? How do you make it go away? Let's chat about that for a couple minutes.
1: Well, the only way that a person will ever shift their behavior is if they acknowledge truly that it's an issue. So the first thing that I do is to basically just shine a mirror on how individual and team behaviors have a negative impact. So for you know, let's take an example, a t- team that gets caught or lost in debate and can never make a decision. Common pattern that happens all the time, perfectly bright people come into a room, they, somebody puts an issue on the table and they will beat it to death. They will talk about it over and over and over and over again. And what ends up happening, you can, you can see it if you observe it, they end up circling the drains. So there'll be a round of discussion about it. And then there'll be another round of discussion just using slightly different words about it. And then there'll be a third round of discussion using slightly, and everybody's saying the same thing, but there's no progress being made. And super simple, you know, you just put your hand up and say, hey folks, I just want to point out something if you've noticed it, but we've basically had the same conversation for three, to- you know, three rounds and we're 45 minutes in and it doesn't seem like we're closer to... to to making a decision. So, so wait
2: a second. You can't tell me you're the only person in the room who notices the problem, right?
1: In In some cases, it, 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 well, notice and being able to put your hand up and say, hey, hold on, let's st- stop are two different things. So there might yeah. be plenty of people in the room that notice it. In, in some teams, there's um, a degree of trust and understanding and they've worked through this where they have given each other permission to put their hand up and say, hey, hold on, we're engaging in some negative behaviors here. Typically, whenever I start that with a, with a team, that, that groundwork hasn't been set. And so there are a lot of folks that they join a team and they just get swept up in that culture. And they might be sitting there going, this is ridiculous. We've talked about this thing for 45 minutes and we're not making any progress. Um, having somebody like me as an external facilitator that has no dog in the hunt to be able to just say, hey, hold on, folks, let's take a time out. Let's review where we're at that can be really powerful because then a lot of people, some folks in the room will go, yeah, you're right. Okay. What do we do about that? So the first thing, like I said, you got to show where that behavior becomes negative. And then the next thing in any behavior changes, you've got to have the person understand and, and really decide that they want to make the shift. Taking that example, or some people that are like i don't want to make decisions in any other way i actually this is how i like to do it and you'll never be able to change them but if they go yeah i can see that this is a problem okay what do we do next and then like anything in life behavioral shift is just a a process here's a process how do we practice it how do we evaluate whether we're improving and and how do we learn our lessons and continue to iterate and, and move forward
2: let's um I want to go back and ask another question about strategy, mediocrity, you know, the companies in your experience write strategic plans that are mediocre. So they actually plan to be mediocre. I mean, they don't do it on purpose. They don't think it's mediocre, but are there plans? Are they just not stretching enough when they write their plans or, you know, what, what causes, I mean, I'm looking for more reasons why companies are mediocre because there's a lot of mediocre companies
1: Right. So I think there are two things that happen that cause mediocre strategic plans. Uh, One is when a group doesn't know how to push for the best outcome. And so they push for the least worst outcome. And so you get a bunch of folks in a room with... Different perspectives on on any strategic initiative, whether it's a, you know, geographical expansion or a, you know a, a new product or service line or a brand new market in its entirety. You'll have competing discussions that sort of sit at different ends of the spectrum. And rather than actually trying to come up with something that's exciting, that incorporates as much as they can, they settle on something that will get the biggest amount to buy in, which is usually the least worst option. So you can you can get a lot of mediocrity coming out of your strategic plans if you do that. The second thing is just if there's not somebody in the room that's constantly Pushing, that's looking at that and going, "Come on, there's something better here. There's something more exciting that we can do here." Somebody that is holding the group accountable, whether that's you know the CEO or the founder or two or three of the folks that are that have that are in the room. You need a you need a a, a counterpoint to that natural settling um, to just agitate for something that's a little bit more innovative and a little bit more creative. Uh, and then the third thing that I'll say is. I think for a lot of organizations, they don't they don't know what it means to truly be creative or be innovative. Um, we have put too much stock in the notion that people by themselves, are, are, are innovative and creative, and some of them are. But in doing that, we're basically saying if we don't have an overly innovative or creative person amongst us, we're not going to be able to be innovative or creative. But innovation and creativity, like anything else, you can build a process that helps you get there. And so if you're finding yourself with a, a somewhat of a mediocre strategic plan that doesn't excite and doesn't enthuse, you might want to start looking at what that process for innovation and creation looks like in your organization.
2: Yeah. I, I would say that um, failure to innovate and uh, especially in the face of a disruptive environment like we're in now uh, is really, uh, you know, companies just don't know what to do. I mean, they just don't know where to go. So what does a process look like? I mean, what are they what are things companies should be doing?
1: Um, you're right that particularly the times that we are in at the minute have caused folks to. Have to innovate a little faster. Uh, in some cases, on a temporary basis that that may may return as as things flash out. Um, you know, there's there's a, a couple of really good models out there. There's a company called Ideo that that runs a design thinking uh, process that's all about how to how to build innovation and creativity into um, into anything that you do, really. And it's focused about it's focused around. Um, Taking a customer-centric approach to how they interact with your goods and services, rather than a company approach. Too often, innovation comes from, or or we think innovation comes from, if we just get people that that are in our business that know the business in the room, they'll somehow come up with creative ideas. But we've actually got to start from the perspective of engaging with our with our users and customers. What what do they need? What sort of products or features or ways in which to interact with us are are most compelling with them? And 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 then to take some basic hypotheses and some basic um, theses that we might have and begin to test and experiment around it. I think too many organizations feel like, you know, what we have to say we're going to do this one big thing. It's going to be our big innovation this year, and they sink a lot of resources and a lot of cost into it, and they have no idea whether it's going to work or not. Um, You know, there's a lot of thinking that's coming out that's saying. Prototype early, get feedback early, um, iterate with your customer rather than just putting something on a wall and saying let's go there. Um, I think just having a bit more of that co-collaborative uh, nature with your customer can be really helpful.
2: You know, um, I'm, I'm I'm certain that Jeff Bezos doesn't innovate that way. He he may test out his systems that way, where they go to the customers. You know, but, uh, you know, there's the old saying, uh, Henry Ford, if you ask your customers what they wanted, they would have said faster horses, you know, I mean, because customers can only think about what's kind of in their reality. So isn't there a tremendous limitation to going to your customers? I mean, sometimes that's the right thing to do for certain things like processes, systems, ease of use, you know, whatever surveys, but don't, you you know, I I recognize that there's a lot more risk in taking, uh, you know, like a bigger step without knowing that there's going to be buy-in. But you know, don't you think that's where the big innovations come from?
1: Um, I, I'm going to push back a little bit on that. I think that we too often use examples like Bezos and, and Musk and Henry Ford and Steve Jobs uh, as examples for how we should run our businesses. And the reality is that Folks that have come and have dramatically revolutionized industries are few and far between. And when we use that as an exemplar for what leadership should be in its entirety, uh, the, most most of us, most leaders don't aren't born with the same level of entrepreneurial and visionary proclivity as, as those folks were. If they were, they would be out revolutionizing industries. And so for most organizations to say, oh, well, we've got to think more like that. I think it distorts what it means to to actually truly lead. Uh, And it it ends up in a position where for every story like Amazon and Apple and Tesla and Ford, you get stories like uh, Fire Festival and Theranos and WeWork, where there was somebody at the helm who said, I'm going to revolutionize an industry. I'm going to think that way. And they end up crossing over the line of uh ethics morality in some cases legality uh and i think instead of saying uh vision and creativity should stand with one person It should be built into every level of leadership in your organization. The only way that an organization will truly exist in the long run is if vision and creativity is built into the processes of how it creates products. Um, And Apple's a perfect example of that. The first time that Steve, when Steve Jobs got kicked out, uh, he was at the point at that point the sole owner of vision and creativity and innovation in the company, and it went out the door with him. Um, You know, John Scully came in, the the thing tanked, they had to bring it back in. And I, and I think, although I don't know because I'm not close enough, but one of the things that Jobs realized when he came back was the vision, innovation, and creativity of this company cannot sit with me. It has to sit with with the leaders in the organization. And I think he spent time working with those leaders to build processes for innovation and creativity that's allowed it to, to continue to grow after he passed away and passed on to Tim, Tim Coop.
2: Now, this, is, this is quite fascinating because, um, uh... I, You know, again, I I listen to what you're saying, and I I don't think that uh, trying to be uh, not everybody can be Jeff Bezos and everybody else. I mean, granted, but, uh, you know, but I think that not trying also leads to mediocrity. It doesn't necessarily lead to Theranos. I mean, not everybody goes off the cliff and does something improper. I mean, I mean, that's that's far and in between too. maybe more common than we admit, but but it's not all that common. But, you know, but I kind of wonder, you know, are companies that don't stretch and try to be their best, um, you know, if they end up, you know, suffering in the long run? Now, one thing I do agree with that you're saying is that it can't be one person's job. It has to be part. It has to belong to uh, I think personally, I think everybody, I think every person in the organization uh, can have an impact. And that's because every single person in the organization has a network of people that they get feedback from. And if they ever hear anything important, they should be feeding that back. And I, I call that, you know, those are your spies. I mean, those little people, I mean, they're, they're not literally spies, but they, but they are out there getting market intelligence and they should bring it to the table if they get it. I mean, that's that's me. But, but again, back to the mediocre thing, uh, I, I just think if we say, well, I'm not Jeff Bezos, so, you know, I'm not even going to try. I'm just going to be mediocre. Uh, you know, I think we need to do better I mean, I just think that as a country, as businesses, uh, because we are better. I mean, that's my that's my position.
1: Yeah, I don't I don't disagree with you. I, I think it, it it we can say we're going to do better, uh, and combining a couple of the things that we've talked about um, by pushing for uh, more interesting, exciting stretching goals and strategies to get there by not resting on what we did before um, by challenging our people to think differently to view the world in a different way by en- enlisting the help of not just our customers but but those folks in the organizations you can build that culture of greatness there but but the, the other thing is building a great company, or or becoming a great leader has inherent value in and of itself regardless of the outcome i think sometimes we think you know what if i build if 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 i create good leaders we'll have a we'll have a great company and and that might be true but just building great leadership in and of itself is valuable i think too often we um we view leadership as just sort of this stepping stone to something something more or something better. It's a, a means to an end. Great leadership in and of itself is is an end on its own.
2: Well, I mean the, the goal, the goal is not to produce great leaders. The goal is to uh be successful in the business. So and and one of the uh you know one of the steps to in the process is is developing great leaders. I I, I don't see that as an end. I, I see that as a part of the process to me. I mean is that looking at it backwards?
1: Well, I mean, I think that the the models of of leadership have changed somewhat in the last five or ten years. I think it used to be the case that you know the the way and the the reason why we'd build great leaders would be to return value for you know whatever the stakeholders are, whatever makeup of the company is that you have. Um, and I think we're getting to the point where that's not enough. I think that we're getting to the point where, and actually, I, I, I talk about it quite quite a lot um, in in the book, The Self-Evolved Leader, is that uh, my focus as a leader should be on helping my team achieve our common goals, so the business results side of things. But in doing so to become the best version of themselves, I think that if we are, are viewing leadership only to achieve that first thing, then we're we're missing out on what we really need from our leaders. Our leaders should be responsible for helping those people that work for us to develop and grow and stretch and become a more well-rounded and holistic individual. That to me is great leadership, and and both of them are are equally mm-hmm. as important.
2: Yeah, I you know, listen, I I don't I don't think there's a hierarchy here either. And I think that, that many companies have gotten better at, you know, training their leaders, providing resources to make their leaders better, and, and they should, uh, you know, but the, you know, the the end game, of course, is the business has long-term survival and takes care of the people it's responsible for. Sure. You know, and, you know, and, and I'll tell you, you know, as I always look for the inside track, and to me, the inside track here, uh, at least in the innovation world, is that, everybody has to be part of the process. I mean, that, that's what we were talking about before, you know, the the best, smartest, and fastest way to be successfully innovative, and probably break that cycle of mediocrity, is probably to engage as many people on the team as possible, not make it a, a department of one, but make it a department of everyone, that everyone contributes to the process. And that's, you know, that's probably the biggest takeaway of all
1: for me. I th- yeah, I think you're right. I think also to... to- Um, reframe for a lot of people what innovation and creativity really means. I I think that when you ask people, they believe that that's an inherent uh, ability. Oh, they're very innovative. Oh, they're very creative. And and, and they might. There is a natural tendency for some folks to be more innovative and creative. But in the same way that somebody can be a little bit more naturally gifted when it comes to music or a particular sport or um, cooking, um, innovation and creativity it can be instilled in everybody through ensuring that you've got a shared understanding of, of that process and I think that um, just encouraging folks who may not feel that they're the most naturally inclined to be innovative or creative that they can if you just show them the way that's how you begin to spread a culture of of innovation and creativity in the organization
2: yeah it's interesting that's an interesting thought because. Like I'm thinking about Apple,, uh, you know I'm sure that they go out of their way to hire the very best designers and the people that do the kind of work for them that they that they do. But the standard is probably we will not release something that isn't cool. right. I mean, that's that's their standard. and And they got to get great people to to do that, but they will not let something out the door unless it's cool. And other companies have a different standard about what they let go out the door and you know and and they're, therefore they're not staffing their operations with people that can produce the thing that they want at the end they they get exactly what they got you know that's mm-hmm. that's kind of what it is
1: yeah i mean they have for a long time had such a belief in the in the quality control of their of their product and how it goes out and you know that that's interesting so so you you, you think well Gosh, Dave, you were just talking about uh, iterating and prototyping and getting customer feedback and improving on, on that regard. And now you're saying, well, Apple doesn't let something out the door until it's the highest quality. But if you think about the iPhone, the iPhone has is basically been the same product for 10 years, 12 years. It's iterated and, and, and improved a huge amount. I mean, today's iPhone compared to the first one, far and away, massively improved. It's basically the same thing. So even within Apple, they're like, okay, we got to ensure that whatever goes to the public, whatever prototype we put out there has got to be the highest quality, but then we're going to continue to, to grow and innovate off of the back of that based yeah. on customer feedback. And, you know, you know, Apple has one of the biggest, not just the, from their um, customer base, but the, just the whole developer community in Apple, just the amount of feedback that they get on a regular basis to improve that product is huge huge you know they built it into the ecosystem um and so i think for anybody that's listening it's like okay well do i want to ship and, and innovate off of feedback or do i want to ensure that there's quality control i think you can do both you just got to hit your put your stamp on the ground that says we gotta we gotta get out a product of this quality before we get feedback off of it and then we integrate that um to, to allow us to continue to grow and innovate yeah. off the you
2: brand. know I, I i really do agree with you that uh there aren't very many um uh, Steve Jobs, uh, you know Bezos. There, there just are not that many of those kind of people on this planet. but uh, it sure is good for all of us to, to do our best, to learn from them, to kind of stretch, to be like some of those people and, and do better. because uh, I, I think that as a culture we need to eliminate mediocrity. I, I think it's uh, this was I, I like this conversation. I think it was a very cool conversation because mediocrity uh, is absolutely our enemy.
1: Yeah. And, and and one just final thing to put on that, I think often the problem comes that we think the, that the opposite of, of mediocrity is immediate greatness, whereas true greatness comes from doing the ordinary things extraordinarily well uh, and just getting incrementally better every day 1% better can i be 1% better tomorrow can i be 1% better tomorrow i think often if we try to go to the extreme and say i'm going to do all of these things and be great right off the of day one that's that's hard and it's unsustainable and so my encouragement to to leaders who are hoping to be better is be better 1% better every day and that'll compound over time and then you'll get to you'll get to a point of greatness yeah
2: you know i think that's great advice dave thanks for being on the show this was uh this was great we got an inside track on uh on Eliminating Mediocrity. We talked a little bit about innovation. Very, very cool topic. So thank you very much for sharing and your perspective on leadership is a valuable one.
1: Thank you for having me, Joe. really appreciate it. It was a great conversation. Thank you. You've been listening to Profit from the Inside with Joel Block. For more insights and to learn more, visit joelblock.com.
2: How about a shout out and a huge thanks to our podcast show producer, David Wolf, and the team at Audivita Studios. Profit from the inside wouldn't be possible without these wonderful professionals. To learn more or to find out how you can launch and produce your own podcast show, reach out to www.audivita.com. That's A-U-D-I-V-I-T-A dot
0: Produced by Audivita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.